Hi, my name is John Early with the Radiation Research Society podcast, and today I am talking to Yi Yan. Yi, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so, you know, this is my second um, radiation research meeting. Uh, my first one was actually, I have really fond memories. I was, my first one was in Maui, so that was a great, uh, great first meeting to go to. It was early in my graduate career. I did my training at Northwestern, actually, in the lab of uh, Gail Wolchak. Uh, we worked on radiosensitizing nanoparticles, um, and you know Gail's a great mentor for me throughout these years, and she still is. And um, when I get a chance to come back to Radiation Research Society meetings, I always jump at the chance. Um, so now I'm in uh, in LA. I'm a radiation oncology resident at uh, the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, I'm also doing some research in the lab of uh, Dr. Joanne Weedhaas. Uh, who's the vice chair of research at UCLA. Man, it sounds like yeah. you've got a full plate. Yeah, it's a, it's a full plate, but I would say, you know, I enjoy, you know, you know, I, I, I hate being bored, so I'm, right now I'm never bored, so that's a, that's a good thing. How do you manage it? it? Sounds like these are some pretty complex projects you're working on. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a balancing act. Um, you know, my career aspirations are to kind of do the physician-scientist role, you know, kind of like an 80% research and 20% clinical role in the future. So, you know, this has been a great time for me during residency to kind of learn how to balance these things out, how to structure my, you know, research time, make the most out of that, while at the same time taking, you know, getting the most out of my clinical training. Very cool. What draws you to the research side? I know you said you're 20%, uh, you'd like to be 20% physician and 80% research. Yeah. What is it about research that speaks to you? You know, I just, the part I really love about research and that I've always loved about research is you know, it's, it's kind of the, um, the creative aspects for, you know, nerd, nerdy people like me to, to, be, to be kind of creative. You know, I've never been very good at art or music, but, you know, I think research really gives me that chance to kind of uh, allow my creative juices to, to kind of express themselves in a way. Um, so there's that, and I also always love to learn new things, and, you know, in grad school, you know, in Gale's lab, and also, you know, as a as you know, a research pathway resident at UCLA, I've really had the opportunity to kind of, you know, broaden my horizons and, and push the, you know, my comfort levels and and really learn some new techniques and new areas of research. So, uh, we were talking a bit about research and why you really like it and how it allows you to uh, express your creativity. What is something specifically in research that you really get into that really lets you be creative? Is it something in like arranging like genomic data? Is it something about particle bombardment and running simulations? Yeah, yeah, so that's a great question. You know, um, well, I'll start back, you know, in Gail's lab. Um, you know, I came in with, to the lab with not, you know, like, you know, I think every grad student comes in with not a terrible idea of exactly what they're gonna do. But Gail was really good and she just kind of gave me like general, you know, directions to go, and I kind of took it from there. And what I really enjoyed is that I built my, you know, project from the ground up. Um, and uh, it, you know, the, my project was really unique because it um, really dovetailed with another part of her uh, lab. She was building this uh, device called the Bio Nanoprobe, which is this really cool um, X-ray fluorescence microscope at the Argonne National Labs which allows you to um, do very fine, very uh, high resolution X-ray fluorescence microscopy on cells. And it was a great technique. I was 
able to work with the physicists at Argonne, um, with material scientists at Northwestern, and I just love that interdisciplinary uh, nature of that research. Uh, coming from your background as a radiation researcher, but also as a physician, um, how important is that interdisciplinary um, nature of radiation research in your daily work? You know, I think it's key because as a radiation oncologist, um, you work with physicians, obviously, and in, in you know, caring for mutual patients. But when you're doing radiation treatment planning, you know, you have, you're working with uh, dosimetrists, you're working with physicists, um, you're really... Um, are managing the interdisciplinary team every day when you're taking care of patients. So it's good to be able to speak the language, or at least you know, pretend to speak the language of a physicist or you know, a dosimetrist, and um, you know, have some working knowledge of uh, of what it takes to to you know the physics behind radiation treatment planning. Cool. Who are some people in like your day-to-day -day operations that really help you achieve as much as you can in the lab? Yeah. So you know, I think you know, in every lab. You know the mentor is 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 key to that uh, to that um, uh, to you functioning well and getting the most out of your lab experience. And I think, you know, both Gail when I was a um, a graduate student and the you know Tanya who was the research assistant professor back in my graduate school days, they were, you know, such a great um, inspiration for me and also, you know, uh, you know like a guiding light for me in terms of uh, figuring out going through because every grad student you know goes through periods of their research where they feel like they're, they're kind of stuck in a rut and um, having that expert person you can turn to is always uh, good. And I would say similarly right now, you know, being in uh, Joanne Weedhaus's lab, you know, she's been an excellent way of kind of guiding how to think about, you know, research, uh, research questions, especially given that she's a physician scientist herself, you know, it's been really good to talk to her about and see how she approaches you know, basic science questions from a translational and clinical perspective. Interesting. So earlier we talked about how much you're doing now and you've got some interesting science. We're not quite to that yet, but yeah. uh, what's, your day, what's your day look like right now? Like what does it take to, uh, what are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis at the moment? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I always wake up with a big cup of coffee. <laughs> That's pretty key, but um, right now, you know, with, the, with the, my research pathway at UCLA, you know, the department's been extremely supportive of my research, so I actually have tons of uh, protected time to do basic science research. So I spend majority of my time in lab, um, you know, doing experiments or, you know, designing experiments, working with, you know, technicians in lab and other postdocs in lab, um, troubleshooting things and, you know, just doing basic science uh, research. But at the same time, you know, I had that flexibility to go into clinic and talk to my, you know, clinical mentors as well. You know, I work um, uh, on a, you know, a number of different projects. One of which is, you know, kind of, you know, very clinically based. You know, with the with the um, the head of the head and neck radiation oncology, um, uh, you know, program at UCLA, Dr. Robert Chin. So we've been, um, under, you know, undertaking a pretty fruitful project looking at head and neck cancer patients. So I know that head and neck can be very challenging because of all the tissues that are associated in that area. Yeah, yeah. So you know, those radiation treatment planning for head and neck cancer patients is is uh, requires a lot of expertise. You know, I would say I'm definitely st it's a very steep learning curve that I'm still trying to, to master. Um, but uh, and also radiation treatment planning or radiation treatments themselves for head and neck cancer patients can be very difficult. You know, it's associated with a lot of side effects. Um, and um, 
you know, and, and our challenge is to figure out, you know, who would benefit the most from radiation, who, um, you know, might have more issues with, uh, with that, their radiation treatments. Does your background as a physician really help you dial in these treatment plans? Like I know just a standalone physicist or radiation biologist who may not be a physician um, might have a little bit of trouble planning how to create a care plan after initial dosage. Have you utilized that at all? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, in head and neck cancer, it's one of the, one of the, um, one of the great things about it. what I really like about it is that head and neck cancer patients can be very complex. They could have during their treatment, many you know uh, medical issues come up that you know it forces you to be mindful of the holistic approach in terms of um, of uh, treating them. I think the you know I've always tried to hold true to the saying that you know you're a physician first, right, and radiation oncologist second. So um, you always have to be mindful about you know what are the other medical problems that uh, these patients have and how do you manage these at the same time that you're, you're taking care of their radiation treatments. Cool. That sounds like a very good approach to uh, helping someone who's in a very complex situation, yeah. especially in an emerging field of science. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so let's get into what you're working on right now. Yeah. Um, so let's start at the top. The specifics of what you're working on, again, if you could refresh my memory. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the abstract I submitted here to radiation research is a project I'm working with um, Dr. Reed Haas at UCLA. You know, she's been one of the pioneers in terms of looking at uh, germline variants um, that might be prognostic or predictive of response to radiation treatments or other types of you know chemotherapies. Um, not only response in terms of how will they, you know, who will benefit the most, but also who might have more toxicity or side effects from these treatments. Um, so. My specific project is looking at one uh, specific germline variant in um, the untranslated region, the intronic region of um, one of the key genes that's involved in the immune evasion. So PDL1, you know, program cell death um, ligand one, is um, you know pretty key right now, and we're really excited about it in oncology because it's the target of many immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so we're looking at a specific variant that appears to um, inhibit or alter the regulation of PDL1 by uh, a radiation-induced microRNA. Um, just catch me up real fast. I, this is really interesting stuff. I just want to get up on, caught on one term real fast. When you say immune evasion, is the is that specifically? the cancer evading the radiation or the chemical reaction of what's being applied during radiation? Right, so great question. So, you know, immune evasion, um, I think has been more and more recognized that, you know, uh, um, cancer cells, malignant cells, not only are they able to like multiply without, um, you know, growth signals, but they're also able to avoid detection by the, the body's immune system, which is there as kind of the the first line of defense to get rid of, you know, cells that might be damaged by viruses or environmental factors. And because they're able to avoid that first line of defense, your immune system, they're able to grow unchecked. Um, and that's why, you know, these new immune checkpoint inhibitors are really exciting because 
They basically release the brakes on your immune system and allow your immune system to kind of recognize these uh, immune cells, or these malignant cells, rather. Um, is there any risk when the immune system is sort of, the brakes are released and the immune system is allowed to go? There's, does this have the potential to trigger like an autoimmune response or your immune system can go hyperactive like with an allergic reaction that may not be there? Right, right. So great question. So, you know, that is one of the, some of the side effects of immune checkpoint inhibitors are indeed, you know, um, some autoimmune um, effects um, and increasingly uh, the, one of the main questions that remains on, you know, partially answered, I think, in, in uh, clinical trials is whether or not combination of radiation and immune checkpoint inhibitors, does that actually increase the risk of developing some of these adverse, um, you know, uh, effects? Um, is the immune checkpoint inhibitor a temporary thing or once those breaks are let go, it's on? Uh, so your question is whether or not, you know, these patients, do they have to be on long-term immune? Yeah, essentially if like you take the, if you're on the immune inhibitor and let's say you're taking medication that's allowing this to happen, when you stop taking the medication, will the immune system go back to its normal thing or is it, this is now a permanent, this is now a permanent condition because once that's open, it's open? Yeah, so you know, the research has shown, you know, and it's pretty exciting that some of these patients who do respond to immune checkpoint inhibitors have very durable responses. Their tumors remain under control for long periods of time for years. Um, and you know, that's, that's why it's so exciting is that you do see some patients that respond beautifully and then respond you know, for a long time. But one of the things that you know, kind of you know, goes back to why we're looking at these germline variants is we, you know, right now we don't have a great biomarker. We don't have a great um, idea of who these patients are. You know, we, we, we give these patients, you know, the immune checkpoint inhibitors and allow them to kind of declare themselves. But it would be good to, to know, you know, beforehand, before we, they go on these treatments, to see who are these people who would, you know, benefit the most. Who are the people who, you know, would, be, would have these durable responses? Who are those who wouldn't so that they can, might be able to get some other um, alternative therapy. Okay, so are we kind of in a moment where we're figuring out, I guess like genomically or genetically, we're trying to find those people who respond the best to this type of treatment? Exactly, so you know, I think uh, you touch up on, on another point that I'm really interested in is you know, the genomics, the molecular characteristics of you know, the patient and also the molecular characteristics of their disease, of their tumor. You know, what would that tell us about how they respond um, you know, how will the tumor respond to, to treatment, to radiation, um, and how will the, you know, the patient, the host, respond to treatments as well in the form of toxicity or side effects? Um, when you trigger the immune system using this protocol or methodology, sorry if I used the wrong word there, but when you trigger this type of response, um, do you need to include additional medication to compensate for the strain placed on the immune system? Uh, yeah, so, you know, usually the, the goal of these immune checkpoint inhibitors is kind of release the brakes on your, on your immune system um, and allow your immune system to kind of uh, work against the, the tumor itself. Um, you know, as radiation oncologists, we don't usually prescribe the immune um, inhibitors. Um, you know, what we're really excited about as an ongoing, you know, avenue of research, not my own research, but definitely in the field is trying to figure out ways of how radiation can act as a way to 
elicit immune, an anti-tumor immune uh, response. What do you hope comes out of your research? What would you like this fruit? What would you like this venture to fruitfully bear? Well, I think you know the the goal and dream of any any you know physician or physician scientist is that you know the the outcome of your research is something that reaches the patient and improves their lives either by improving their response to the therapy or by decreasing the side effects from from you know treatments that they receive so that's the ultimate goal um, but I think you know as a secondary goal just as a scientist I think if my research can um, uncover new questions uncover new hypotheses to test and new directions to go I think that's another you know great um, um, result that, that will just um, contribute more to the body of science. In the current landscape, uh, being a researcher, being a physician, it's not just about doing the daily work. Oftentimes there are additional considerations to uh, deal with. Um, Gail mentioned to me that you've managed in the past to wrangle some grants. Yeah. Is grant writing a large portion of the work you do? Yeah, so it, it, is, a it is probably, you know, um, a large, a larger portion of uh, of my work, and I think it's um, it's great because you know you need money to do to do science, obviously, um, but it's also a great way to kind of think through. You know, sometimes if you talk to Gail, she can tell you, and um, that uh, oftentimes I have some some crazy ideas that um, are kind of half baked. So, um, writing a grant is a great way to you know, make you more rigorous, right? Like take those, you know, kind of crazy ideas um, and put it down on paper and figure out, is this doable, right? Is this feasible with the amount of money that I have, amount of time, amount of resources, and who should I collaborate and talk to? Who should I get feedback from um, in order to design a feasible um, experiment, a feasible research plan? It sounds like the grant writing experience is helpful to you. Is that um, I know some people can find it quite arduous. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like it helps you focus and it helps you really lay down the logistics of your plan. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely helpful. It's not easy, or and sometimes it's not always pleasant, um, but it, but it definitely is useful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would be nice if we could just do the science, but unfortunately we have to keep the lights on, right? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, grant writing is, you know, is an art that um, you learn and get better at um, the more you do. And um, luckily, you know, I've had mentors who've always pushed me to, to write grants and, you know, um, and to, you know, develop that way of um, uh, systematizing what I'm thinking about and the experiments that I want to do and how to you know, really carry out hypothesis-driven basic science research and translational and clinical research. What is some advice you could give to someone who might be writing their first grant and really has no idea kind of what they're doing? What would be just a good rule of thumb for them to keep with them as they continue their scientific journey? Yeah, I think the key is to just get feedback early and often. Um, I think that's key, you know, like um, writing down your, you know, coming up with a good hypothesis and specific aims for a grant and then having multiple people kind of weigh in on it and, um, you know, give you critiques and give you suggestions can really make it, uh, make your grant uh, much more um, robust and much more, you know, in, in, much more impactful. You know, it's not always easy because, you know, oftentimes these grant deadlines like sneak up on you and, you're something like uh, I gotta write this tomorrow, but you know, I think if, if I think that's my key advice, and I think from my own experience, it's always been useful to get second or third person, you know, one of my mentors to really go through with a fine tooth comb and 
tell me what they like and what they don't like. So, um, ye, where do you hope to be in like five, six years? Is this project going to go for the next decade, or do you hope to transition to different uh, realms of radiation science? Where Where are you hoping to be? Yeah, so I really, you know, hope to kind of leverage my time right now. You know, this I've had you know a fantastic uh, opportunity to do a lot of research during residency, which. Uh, is really a unique um, experience, and I really hope that you know I can develop a research um, um, kind of uh, you know direction. Um, and I think that you know the the projects that I have going now with um, looking at you know uh, the genetic differences within different um, patient populations, the host genetics as well as the tumor genetics has, um, you know, potentially a lot of clinical impact, especially given that, you know, genomics and molecular characteristics is going to be, play a larger and larger role in the care of patients. Um, it's already affecting, you know, how patients, uh, you know, what patients get uh, certain types of chemotherapeutics uh, in the clinic. I think, um, you know, radiation oncology will, will very soon follow that and, and, you know, the molecular aspects of um, a patient's disease is going to drive um, uh, treatment decisions in radiation oncology in the near future. And I really hope that next five, ten years I'll be able to, you know, um, run some clinical trials and do more translational research in this, uh, in this field. Interesting. It sounds like a fairly disruptive technology, but at the same time, uh, the way in which you described it, its implementation should be slow enough that the adaptation won't be too crazy on the medical side of things. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's always good checks and balances, you know, in terms of um, what things uh, um, that are preclinical or, you know, translational get actually um, applied in clinics. So I think that all of these, um, you know, genomic biomarkers or, you know, genetic variants will undergo very rigorous, you know, validation studies and prospective clinical trials that will hopefully separate out ones that are, are going to be the most promising for a clinical application. Man, that's fantastic. Uh, there's a lot going on in your world. There's a lot happening. Um, anything else you're doing at the lab that you want to let us know about? I mean, this is cool stuff. Yeah, you know, um, I, think the, I think that's more than enough uh, for me right now, but, um, you know, I, I'm working on a grant right now, so hopefully get that, get that out and hopefully get some money and do some more uh, cool research that, uh, that I like to do. That's awesome. Well, Yi, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. All right, you're welcome. All right. Thank you for joining us with the RRS podcast.